Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. And I'd like to begin this morning by considering a book that came out a while ago. Um, Actually, it came out close to 1900 years ago. It was written in the somewhere in the year 177 to 180 AD. And it was written by a man by the name of Celsus. How many of you are familiar with Celsus? Oh, look at these. All good students. Celsus. Well, who was Celsus? Well, we really don't know a lot about him. In fact, we don't know exactly what he wrote because his book is gone. We don't have an existing copy of it. But an earlier church writer tried to write against Celsus, and so we are able to determine certain things that this critic said. Celsus was kind of like an ancient Richard Dawkins or an ancient Christopher Hitchens. He was thinking of ways that he could tear down Christianity. And he wrote a book called On the True Doctrine, A Discourse Against Christians. And he really had basically three issues um, in his writing. The first of all was he wanted to defend the status quo of the Roman Empire. He thought, you know, to be a member, a citizen of the Roman Empire, you should follow the religion of the state. That was his main, one of his main points. His second main point, which is a common critique against Christianity even today, and his second critique was that only ignorant people believe, and that if you were just more educated, then you wouldn't believe. Now, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians as well. But Celsus really tries to unpack this attack against Christianity. And then his third main line of argument, pardon me, was to try to overturn philosophically main concepts in Christianity. What kind of concepts? Well, number one, first of all, he dismissed the idea of the virgin birth. He said, you know, that is ludicrous. And he had a number of different points, I'd like to focus on one main idea that he brought out, and that was the concept, you and I might call it the great controversy, the cosmic conflict, the idea that there is a force that opposes God. Celsus thought this was absurd, and he said, you know, the Christian God is really too weak to stop this being, which which we would call Satan. He again thought this was an absurd idea. And he wrote, he raised this question, does this mean that the Son of God can be beaten by the devil? He's got a list of arguments that he's trying to bring out, and this was one of his main critiques of Christianity. If God really is sovereign, is God sovereign? If God was really all-powerful, is he all-powerful? Then why is there so much suffering? Why does the devil seem to win? Even in the crucifixion, why does the devil seem to win? And so he raises this question about God, and and really it's an important question for us to think about, and part of our passage this morning, I hope, will give us an answer to this question. How does God relate in the great controversy? What are the means that God uses to persuade humanity. Celsus was trying to say, you know, if you have a God that's all-powerful, he simply should exercise his authority and people would come into line. 
But one of the truths of the Christian faith is that God gives people an abundance of freedom. And in that freedom is the choice that we can respond to God, we can resist God. And any parent knows as their child reaches a certain age, you know, it's wonderful for Craig and Alicia, their kids are nice and small, you do this, and they're so wonderfully obedient, um, as all young children are. But obviously, children get to a point where they make their own decisions. And how do we as parents, how do we as friends, how do we relate to this abundance of freedom that God extends, and yet God's call to live a certain way? I think the passage that we're going to look at this morning helps point us about it. There's something about the cross, there's something about the death of Christ that has tremendous persuasive power. There's something about the death of Christ that has more persuasive power than simply demonstrating force. So let's turn. uh, Colossians chapter 1, you're probably already already there. Let's back up a little bit and start in verse 15. And we're going to look verses 15 through 20. And in this little section, Paul quotes a hymn or writes a hymn. um, And part of it deals with Christ over creation. And then he moves into this idea of Christ over recreation or Christ and redemption. So let's look at a a couple of points here. And one of the things you'll notice as we read through the passage, there's a phrase that's repeated at least five times. Some of your translations may have more, maybe some less. But that phrase is all things. So as we read through this passage, notice that expression that comes out over and again. First of all, in verse 15, Paul tells us that Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. And as we've said many times, as we've been taking our Sabbaths and looking at the cross, if we want to find out what God is like, we see that in the life of Jesus Christ. That is our clearest understanding of who God is. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Some of our friends might mean or misread that to say that he's the firstborn, first thing created. But notice what verse 16 tells us. What's the first word of verse 16? For or because. Why is he the firstborn of all creation? For or because what? In him, by him, all things were created. Notice that expression, all things were created both in heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now on the screen, I use the English words, the correspondence to what Paul uses in the original. And Paul says in that one verse, he says, in him, through him, and for him, everything came into existence. In him, through him, and for him. In other words, we could say that in him, Christ is the architect. Christ, in Christ, before anything was created, it existed in in the mind of Christ. Through him, he's the builder. He's the agent of creation. And he's the owner, if I can use the analogy of 
again, an architect, a builder, and a, and a home. He's the architect. He visualized it. He saw what it should be like. He was created through him. He's the active agent. And it all exists for him in creation as well. Verse 17. He is what? Before all things. He's before what? All things. The same all things that were created, he existed before. Now, there's a lot of questions today in Christianity whether this is true or not. Did Jesus really exist before all things? Well, Paul's pretty clear. He is before all things. He created all things, and he existed before all things. And then Paul tells us, and it's an amazing uh, expression that he uses, and it was really wrestling, like how to communicate this. Everything holds together in him. What does that mean? If it were not for Jesus Christ, this universe would just fly apart into pieces. There is an active work that Christ does. Paul tells us in Acts chapter 17 that in him we live and move and have our being. That all the laws of nature are not just these abstract laws that God put into motion and then they just run, even the law of gravity. But in him, everything consists. Everything is held together continually now. That's really a tremendous Tremendous thought to think about it. You know that when you eat a piece of fruit and your digestive process puts it into being, who's behind all that? God is. Christ is. You work in your gardens and something grows. Who's behind all that? Christ is. In him, everything holds together. Um, a commentator by the name of uh, Lightfoot said this, he makes the universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. He is the one that brings order to the universe. All things hold together in him. Even your life is held together by him. And I'm not talking about your life, your heart beating, although that's true. I'm talking about the circumstances of your life. There are times in our lives when our lives look like they are chaos. But he Everything holds together in him. He is the one that wants to bring order into our lives as well, to bring clarity where we only see confusion, to bring light into dark places. Here's Paul's beautiful thought. Again, it's brought out in, in many different places. And Paul has been talking so far in our passage about what he does literally in creation. But he also does it, metaphorically or spiritually, we could say, in the new creation, which is the church. He is the one that holds the church together. He holds everything together. I'm sure we've all been familiar at times where church members fight with one another, one another, and there seems to be schism or division or separation in a church. What does that represent? It represents a lack of Christ. Because in him, everything holds together. And Paul has been talking about creation. In the next verse, he's going to talk about the new creation, the recreation. He's going to talk 
about the church. Let's look here in verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Here Paul's talking, this is true in relation to creation, it's true in relation to the cosmos, it's, it's true in relation to inanimate objects. The question is, is it true in relation to our hearts and our lives? That Christ really has first place there as well. It's true that from an objective sense, he is keeping the universe moving, spinning, keeping your heart beating. But does he have the first place in your heart and in mine? Does he have the first place in our affections, in our allegiance, in our devotion? First place in everything. But let's move on to verse 19 and 20, which is really um, where I want us to focus our attention before we separate for the communion service. Verse 19, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. All the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. Verse 20, And through him, through Christ, again, this is the Father's good pleasure, that through him, through Christ, he was going to reconcile all things, there's that last expression of that phrase, all things back to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So we've been talking here in this church over the past three months or so about the death of Jesus. We noticed continually that it's always God in Christ, God working through Christ. We look at the cross, we see God revealed. And we looked previously, uh, several weeks, several months back actually, at a sermon where we talked about how God is the great reconciler. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5. But this passage tells us a little something different. It tells us not only did God reconcile the world, but what is God reconciling? All things. Things that are in heaven or on the earth. Thrones, principalities, all things. The all things that were created, the all things that are held together, these are the same all things that have been reconciled by God through Jesus Christ in the death on the cross. Now that should raise some questions in, in your mind, like, what does that mean? All things in heaven are reconciled. And there's a couple of answers to it. Um, Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 8, for example, that uh, the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the restoration. So in, in some aspect, through the death of Christ, it has been made so that the entire universe will be restored to the beauty and harmony that existed before sin came into this world. But who's really involved in all things? Who would be involved in all things? Well, verse 20, all things that are, two locations are mentioned. What are they? What are the locations? Earth and heaven. All things, earth and heaven. And we begin to think about this, like what is Paul talking about? 
And again, he's reconciled all things and he's made peace by the death of his cross. And if we think about this, there's a couple of possible ways we can understand this verse. Uh, Some people actually would say, well, this means that everybody is going to be saved because he's reconciled all things. Well, what would be the problem with that viewpoint? Say that again? Okay, there are people that don't want to be reconciled, and there are Bible verses that talk about people that won't be reconciled. That'll be lost, right? So we have a little difficulty with this verse if we're to say, well, this means everyone's going to be saved. But what could it mean? What could it be talking about? He has reconciled all things in heaven and on earth, having made peace through the blood of his cross. What do you think? Sorry, you're going to have to talk louder because my ears are a little stuffed. Pardon me. Okay, all, going back to Celsus' argumentation, you know, why would God let this happen? All questions about God's character have been answered. I like that. A full and complete payment, whatever the debt that was incurred through our transgression has been met. The battle has been won. Peace has been made. You know, sometimes peace comes to a, if there's a country at war, we think back to the Second World War and, and Germany, peace finally came. Not everybody was really happy about that peace, were they? Not everybody was happy. But peace finally came. And Paul is telling us, you know, lots of different avenues we could, we could think about this, but clearly, through the death of Christ, there is a cosmic reconciliation. Some way, through the death of Jesus, the entire universe sees the rightness of God's actions. The entire universe realizes that through the cross, that is the place where God is made known, and that is the place of safety. A couple of years ago, I was um, at an ASI meeting, and um, Frank gave a series of morning talks. And in one of the morning talks, he, uh, sorry, this is Frank over here in the front, for those of you that don't know him. Uh, he gave a series of talks, and in the, one of the presentations that he gave, he, he quoted a really tremendous passage, which I'm going to share with you in a moment. But this quotation, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, really answers Celsus's argument, Celsus's question, how does God persuade the universe? You know, what's going on here with this battle? It, does Satan really win? Of course Satan doesn't win. But God wins not by a display of force, but by a display of self-sacrifice. This is how God conquers. So this is from uh, a Signs of a Time article. And clearly, there's going to be a time when Satan is destroyed. Amen? And at that time, there will be nobody to tempt anyone to evil. Um, But notice what this quotation says. There are a couple of them. The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except how? By looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. Think about that for a moment. Unfallen angels are not secure except they do what? They come to the cross and they behold the sufferings of God. And they realize that the one that is crucified is the one that holds the whole 
universe together. Quotation continues. It is through the efficacy, the power of the cross, that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Christ reconciled everything in heaven and earth through his death on the cross. That even the angels in heaven, they are safe from choosing to rebel because of the death of Christ. That same place of safety is available for you and for me. That we too can be secure against apostasy as we come to the cross. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. <clears throat> Revelation 12 tells us that in Ezekiel 28. Human perfection failed where? In Eden. All who wish for security in earth or on heaven must look to the Lamb of God. That's from an article, Signs of the Times, uh, December 30th, 1889. The only place of security for us is to look away from ourselves and to Jesus Christ. And that's what the communion service is all about, to get us to turn our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ. Where we see the one place of security in the universe. Do you want Christ to bring order into your life? You want Christ to, to make your life make sense, even though it may look shattered or chaotic, to bring order out of the chaos? He's longing to do that. He has done it through giving himself, and he wants to apply the benefits of it to you and to me today. This time we're going to uh, separate for our foot washing, and just for some of you that might be visiting with us, foot washing service was initiated by Jesus in the Gospel of John, where Jesus first washed the disciples' feet. Um, and so we as Seventh-day Adventists, we follow his example, as he told us to do, John 13. And so before we partake in the communion service and have the representation of his broken body and his shed blood, we separate and wash one another's feet. And in our church, we have a few different ways for people to participate in that. There's uh, couples or families are welcome to share together in the fellowship hall. And then there's a place for the men, which would be upstairs. You'd go down that hallway and up the stairs to the top. And then the single women would be down that hallway into the rooms there. If you'd like to participate as a family, we'd like to ask that you'd go outside and go through the side door for the gym. It'll help keep the traffic flow a little easier down the hallway. And so at this point, let's separate. Let's keep in mind the place of security for us is at the cross of Christ. And as we wash one another's feet, we're remembering how Jesus humbled himself to come cleanse us and save us as well. So at this time, let's separate for the foot washing. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Can we think back to the night in which Jesus, the last night Jesus spent with his disciples before he was captured, tried, and then went to the cross? As they sat at that Passover meal, Jesus again took what was right before him, the unleavened bread and the unfermented fruit of the vine, and used them as representation of his body and the life that he would pour out for us. So again, we do that in commemoration of that great event. 1 Corinthians 11, 
starting in verse 23, the Apostle Paul tells us, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So again, it's our privilege to, in our imagination, in our mind's eye, to to come to that last night, to come to the cross, and be secure in Jesus Christ. At this point, Chris and I will kneel. We invite the congregation to bow your heads as we pray, um, ask God's blessing over the bread. Father in heaven, we thank you for this tangible reminder that you've given to us. Uh, We thank you that as we break the bread, as we eat it, our faith could go out to you as well, and that we could realize that all things are held together through Jesus Christ. May, as we eat that bread, may we assimilate spiritually by faith Christ into our lives. Again, we thank you for this opportunity. We ask your spirit to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.